This is your Professor Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language and subject matter. Our aim is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. And my aim, as always, is education. Hello, class. How's everybody today? Before we start class, I have a very quick announcement. I want to give a shout out to a new podcast that I found. It's really cool, and they don't have a promo, so I said that I'd give them a shout out. They're called Misery Manor, and it's run by Emily and Cody, and they do both true crime and spooky stuff, and Cody usually does the storytelling. It's really fun and interesting, so give them a listen. So today, we are going to Sweden, or should I say properly, the Kingdom of Sweden, which is the largest Nordic country and a constitutional monarchy. Specifically, we're going to be visiting the capital, which is Stockholm. It's the largest city and also the largest urban area in Scandinavia. It's actually built on 14 islands, and one of the many cool things they have in Stockholm is the ABBA Museum. That's my favorite band, so I would definitely want to check that out if I was ever in Stockholm. Sweden, as a rule, is a very safe country. Crime rates are low, except for starting in 1991. There were a couple strange crime waves going on that kind of panicked the residents of Stockholm. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. The first incident happened on the night of August 3rd, 1991, when 21-year-old David Gebramaran from Eritrea and two of his friends were coming out of a subway station. And they paused. It, it was dark. And they paused so that David could light a cigarette. And while he's standing there doing this, his friends noticed a strange red light moving around. Then it stopped on David's back, and they're like, what the hell is going on here? All of a sudden, they heard a shot. So they all ran. But sadly, David had been hit on his right side above his hip, so he fell. The friends called for help, and he went to the hospital. He ended up being fine. And the police thought, well, that's strange, but they chalked it up to just a random incident. So the second incident happened a couple months later on the night of October 21st. A 25-year-old Iranian student named Sharam Koshravi was leaving the gym area of Stockholm University, and he was walking through like a park area. He heard a noise in the bushes, and before he knew what happened, he was shot in the jaw, and he fell. And fortunately, he was found by a cyclist who called an ambulance. And on the way to the hospital, he found that there was a piece of bullet in his mouth. It turned out to be a twenty-two. So six days later, the incidents are getting closer now. On the night of October 27th, there was a homeless dude, a Greek, named Demetrios Camelagos. He was getting his bedding ready, sleeping bag and, and stuff ready to sleep in the city. And he noticed somebody ride by on a bicycle. 
didn't pay any attention to him. Then the person came back on foot, and he looked up and saw a red light pointing at him. Next thing he knew, two shots rang out and hit him in the stomach. Fortunately, he was able to run to the nearby police station. Police took him to the hospital. He refused any further treatment. So now the police are like, okay, we've had three of these strange incidents, shootings, and they had put together the fact that all the victims were immigrants and that the red light that everybody was seeing before the shooting was a laser sight, the type of thing that usually hunters or snipers put on their guns so that they can focus in on a target and it emits a light. So the fourth incident occurred just five days later during the middle of the day. A Brazilian musician named Heberson Vieira da Costa was in a band and he had a gig. So he goes into the restaurant where they were going to be playing to set up his instruments and stuff. And when he went in, he noticed a strange dude walking around the building smoking. And the guy had on a trench coat and he said, quote, really strange hair. It was a strange color of red, like a wig and rectangular metal glasses. So he's still in there setting up and getting ready for his concert. And an hour later, he had the feeling somebody was behind him. So he turns around and sees the same dude in the trench coat. And he said they looked right at each other. And he said, quote, I really saw hate in his eyes. So next thing Heberson knows, the guy pulls out a gun from his coat and he heard three pops. He got hit in the jaw and stomach. So he's laying there on the floor. His blood was pooling under him and he really thought he was going to die. But fortunately, there was a friend of his in the other room and he heard him calling out for help. And Heberson lost almost three liters of blood. We only have five. So he lost over half of his body amount of blood. He was lucky to be alive. Before he became unconscious, he told the police about the guy he'd saw, seen in the trench coat and about seeing the laser sight. So he was unconscious in the hospital for six days. The police go to the crime scene and they're looking around and they find three cartridge cases and they start questioning people around the area. And they find a woman who said that she saw the dude in the trench coat running from the building. She described the odd red hair, the glasses. So she sat down with a police artist and did a composite. I have a picture of that in my social media for you to look at. So they take the composite drawing to Heberson, who is now fortunately awake, and they're like, does this look like the guy who shot you? And he's like, yes, that's exactly like him. So the media, you know how they always give somebody a nickname, they started calling him Laser Man because of the laser sight on his gun. And the police were able to determine that the gun being used was an Irma EM-1 22 semi-automatic rifle. One week later, on November 8th, the next incident occurred, and the victim was 34-year-old Iranian student Jimmy Ronjabar. 
He was walking down the street at night, and he lived in Sweden with his common-law wife and two kids. He'd been here for over 10 years. All of a sudden, somebody with a gun runs up behind him and shoots him in the head. And Jimmy was rushed to the hospital, but sadly, he died the following day. So out of all the shootings so far, this was the first fatality. The police found one cartridge near the scene, and it was the same kind of twenty-two rifle that had been at the other shootings. So Heberson, who's still in the hospital when this happened, was laying there in his hospital bed watching the news, and he sees that this guy had now killed somebody. And he said in a documentary about the survivor's guilt he had that, you know, he felt kind of guilty that he had lived and this dude had died. So the police released the composite, and what they did was they questioned every red-haired guy they could find. I don't know how know how many red-haired men there are in Sweden, but this seems like a really big task to me. So people started to panic, and they had reports of red-haired men in trench coats everywhere, as you can imagine, and they thought they saw red lights everywhere and they started to get kind of freaked out. So two months go by with no more shootings, which is good. And also, the police noticed that, coincidentally, they hadn't had any more instances of another type of crime that had been going on in the city. There had been a series of bank robberies in which the perpetrator got away on bicycle. But this would come to an end when... On January 22nd of 1992, in Uppsala, which is 71 kilometers or 44 miles north of Stockholm, and interestingly, the seat of the Archbishop of the Church of Sweden and home to Scandinavia's biggest cathedral. So the victim this time was a dude from Chile named Eric Bonkem Rudloff. He was a PhD student. He was walking with his wife, and all of a sudden, a masked man comes out of the dark with a gun and shoots him once and runs. He was shot in the head, but fortunately, he survived. Now, the gun was 38, but police knew that it was still the same person. I mean, what are the chances? An immigrant walking at night, somebody runs up and shoots him in the head. The next incident happened the very next day, so he's really escalating on January 23rd. A guide from Zimbabwe named Charles Daklama gets out of a car, goes into a store, and a masked man comes up to him and shoots him three to four times. He got hit in the chest, and fortunately, a witness saw a guy running away from the scene. He got into a white Nissan Micra, which I've never heard of that type of car. It must be something in Europe. So this dude follows him and writes down the license plate number. The police find out that, to nobody's surprise, the license plate number had been stolen, but at least they knew what kind of car he had. Charles was okay, fortunately. The police found that he had been shot three times by a thirty-eight caliber weapon. So the police got a list of all of the registered white Nissan Micras in the area, 
and it turned out to be about 12,000. So that same night, a masked man goes into a Somalian club in central Stockholm where, you know, Somalian immigrants hang out and there's all these people in there playing cards and drinking and whatnot. So the masked guy comes in and starts shooting everybody. He must have been a really bad shot. Fortunately, only two men had been shot and the bullet just grazed their heads. And a witness said that they saw something big and black on the gun. And the police were thinking that it was a silencer. And they found plastic shards on the ground consistent with that found on silencers. And they studied the bullets and they realized that they were damaged. And they're trying to figure out what happened to these bullets. Eventually, they determined that the shooter had somehow modified his weapon. And that not only accounted for the damaged bullets, but for why he seemed to be such a shitty shot, which was actually fortunate. So the next instance happened five days later, January 28th, also at night. A Turkish immigrant named Isa Abar was working at a store when a masked man comes up, shot him four times in the head and arm, and ran. And Isa was severely wounded, but he was able to call the police and the ambulance came, and he ended up being okay. So two days later, on January 30th, a shop owner named Hassan Zatera, a Lebanese immigrant, was shot at close range in the head. He survived, but unfortunately, he had permanent brain damage. So by now, everybody in the area is panicking, and even Swedish people who had like natural dark hair were kind of freaking out and some were even dyeing their hair blonde because like I said by now it was obvious that the shooter was targeting immigrants. So in February of 1992 the police had a forensic psychiatrist develop a profile and the profile said that this person would be strange like most snipers or serial shooters would be a loner, doesn't like confrontation, rigid in his thinking, most likely lives alone, and doesn't melt easily into the community. In other words, doesn't play well with others. So the police got lucky. They finally found a Nissan Micra that had been rented in January at the time that the three shootings occurred together. And the name on the rental form was John Ausonius. And that sounded familiar to them because this guy, first of all, that's not a very common name. I'll tell you where it comes from later. He had actually been a suspect in the assassination of Olaf Palme, who had been the prime minister of Sweden and he was assassinated on February 28th of 1986. At that time, however, Ausonius was found to be in prison on assault charges. So he was cleared in the assassination of the prime minister. But they did recognize the name, and they're like, hmm. He was known to be antisocial and had a, a thing about immigrants. And he fit the profile 
but he didn't look like the composite, or at least he didn't currently look like the composite drawing. They found that he used a P.O. box. He had post office box. He had no, like, fixed address or home address. So the police, this was pretty smart. They went around checking different membership lists of places and trying to figure out where he could be listed. And they found that he was registered at a video store. This was 1992 when you had to, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to go rent the video. There was no such thing as Netflix. So they found this video store and they said, yeah, we do have him listed here, but he hasn't rented a video in a few months. And the owner promised to call the police if this guy came in the store. Well, the police, in the meantime, watched the store. So while they're doing this, there were a couple older dudes fishing on a bridge outside of Stockholm, and one of them snagged something interesting on his line. It happened to be a thirty-eight revolver in a holster. So he took it to the police, and they noticed that the revolver had been modified with an unusual adapter at the end. So they test-fired it and confirmed that it matched with the shootings. So everything was quiet for a while. No shootings, no bank robberies, because John Ausonius was out of the country. Using a fake passport, he went to Germany, where he would commit one more murder. On February 8th, he went into a restaurant in Frankfurt, Germany, and he got in an argument with a woman who worked in the coat room. And this was 68-year-old Blanca Zimigrod. I hope I'm saying that right. It's Z-M-I-G-R-O-D. She happened to be of Polish descent. So two weeks later, he returned and accused her of stealing an electronic notebook from his coat pocket. And what was so important about this little electronic device was that it had information on it, like people's bank account numbers and stuff, because he was also into white-collar crime. And as he left the restaurant, he yelled at her, we will meet again. So the next night, Blanca was leaving work. She was walking home. So Ausonius hopped out of wherever he was following her and shot her at close range, killing her with a hollow-point bullet. And he also stole her purse. This woman, Blanca, she was born on January 22nd, 1924 in Poland. She had been in four concentration camps, including Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. And she had been all through that, through four different concentration camps, only to be gunned down by this asshole. And there's actually a memorial plaque for her on the spot where she was shot in Frankfurt, Germany. After this happened, John Ausonius fled to South Africa. And he had a thing for South Africa. He liked it there. He got all his weapons there, and he was into hunting big game, like lions and, I guess, I'm just guessing, zebras and just totally disgusting, wrong 
things, and of course he kept pictures of them as trophies. So back to Sweden, and on June 10th, he goes into the video store, and the police have the place staked out. So they follow him, and they notice that he's on a bike, and they're, they're still watching him. On June 12th, he leaves a building at 10 o'clock in the morning. He has on a suit and a briefcase. Looks like he's going to work somewhere. He's on his bike. The police follow him, and he just, like, disappears. All of a sudden, he just vanished. So they're like, where did he go? A few minutes later, he just suddenly reappears in gym clothes, and he goes into a bank. He comes out a few minutes later, taking off a ski mask. So the police are like, oh my God, he just robbed that bank. So they go to stop him. He fired a shot at them. Fortunately, it didn't hit anybody. He runs, but the police surrounded him in an alley and, of course, arrested him. And, of, of course, there was money from the bank in his briefcase. So the police actually cheered with relief. They were so glad to have caught not only the shooter, but strangely, it turned out to be their bank robber also. So they searched his apartment where they found red hair dye in rectangular glasses that matched those on the composite and also a revolver. The serial number had been scratched off, but they were able to recover it and traced it to a store in South Africa that had the record of the transaction that it had been bought by Ausonius. So this asshole continues to maintain his innocence, although he was literally caught red-handed, like actually running out of the bank with a bag full of money. And the firearm evidence linked him to the shootings also. So he started being a real pain in the ass. He went through six different attorneys. He kept firing them, kept changing them. You know how they do all the delaying tactics. He wanted to control his defense, wanted to control everything. He actually assaulted two of his attorneys. And as a result, he was kept handcuffed in court all the time. So before we get to his trial, let's find out exactly who was John Ausonius. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of biographical information I could find on him. His name wasn't John Ausonius to start with. He was born Wolfgang Alexander Zog in Ledingo, Sweden, which is a municipality east of Stockholm. His parents were immigrants. His dad was Swiss and his mom was German. And he grew up in Vallingby, which is a working-class suburb of Stockholm. Because his parents were foreigners, he was bullied by his peers, who were like pure Swedes, and he was teased for having dark hair and eyes. He went to a private school in Stockholm called the German School. This was established in 1612 because Stockholm had long been a destination for traders of the Hanseatic League, which was like a trade group or merchant guild between the 13th and 17th centuries. And the kids at this school spoke German. But he dropped out at some point, but eventually he finished an adult education program. I'm thinking that would be like our version of it, GED. He was later accepted into something called the Royal Institute of Technology 
or KTH. And supposedly he studied chemistry there. But he flunked out of there after a couple years. So apparently not a very good student. At some point, he changed his name. He thought that Wolfgang sounded too German. And it sounds like he had an identity crisis. And he wanted to, I guess, sound more Swedish. He did dye his hair blonde and also got blue contacts. And if you look at a picture of him, he has black hair. And I'm thinking, if he dyed his hair blonde with the dark coloring, he probably looked ridiculous. But first he changed his name to John Wolfgang Alexander Stannerman. And then he picked John Wolfgang Ausonius. And if you're wondering, where did he come up with the name Ausonius? Well, he got it from a Roman poet named Decimus Magnus Ausonius. He was a poet and rhetoric teacher from Aquitaine, which is now France, lived between 310 and 395. And if you're wondering what this obscure Roman dude did that was so interesting, the answer is absolutely nothing. He was just some random dude from history, as far as I can determine. There was nothing really special about him. Very strange person to name yourself after, but I mean, we're talking about a strange person here, in case you haven't figured that out. He became a Swedish citizen in 1979 when he was 26, and he joined the army between 1981 and 82. So you'd think he would be familiar with weapons. Well, as we're going to see, he messed with all of his weapons and with the silencer and I'm not real familiar with guns, but I do know that from modifying the guns that he had, he pretty much ruined them. Even with the laser sight, he couldn't seem to, which is good for everybody involved, that he, out of uh, how many, 10 or 11 people that he shot, only one died. Well, if, if we don't count Blanca. But that's not a very good record, especially considering that he was, in some cases, literally shooting them from like a couple feet away, and also considering the fact that he was in the army. I mentioned before that he was in prison for assault, and around 1986, he met a fellow inmate named Miro Beresic, and he was a Croatian assassin slash terrorist who killed the Yugoslav ambassador to Sweden named Vladimir Rolovic. So this guy must have been, I'm thinking, pretty influential. He seemed to develop an affinity for him and developed a hatred for communists, social democrats, immigrants, people of that nature. Just basically a hater, if you will. So he got a job driving a taxi, but this wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to be rich. And if you've seen the movie or read the book American Psycho, he reminds me very much of the character from there. His name was Patrick Bateman. He was the serial killer from American Psycho who was obsessed with being rich, making money, and having luxurious things. 
He started trading stocks and bonds and found that he had a talent for this. So he quit his taxi job and he started trading stocks full time. He actually made quite a bit of money at this and he became what you would call a yuppie. He had a luxury apartment, a Toyota Supra, which is a fancy sports car, and a mobile phone. And this would have been maybe 80s or 90s when very few people had these mobile phones and they were like humongous. I don't know if you, if you can picture one about as big as a cement block. But unfortunately for him, he made some bad investments and he also developed a gambling addiction. So he lost a lot of money. And at one point he was actually homeless. So he's like, hmm, okay, how do I get myself out of this hole that I've dug for myself? Unlike most people who would go out and look for a better job or, or maybe go back to school or learn some kind of skill, he decided he'd start robbing banks. And including the one he was caught robbing, he robbed a total of 18. Something very telling about Wolfgang or John or whatever his name was. His favorite movie was Death Wish. And I've never seen this movie, so I had to look up some information on it. It's from 1974. It stars Charles Bronson as a vigilante who, tired of crime in his city, goes out and decides that he's going to punish people himself by shooting them. And from what I read in the movie, most of the people he shot ended up being either black or Latina, which is just an interesting little note. So at some point, Mr. Ausonius gets the idea to kill immigrant criminals. And the point of this, which it totally just doesn't make any sense at all, was to draw the police's attention from his bank robberies. So he's like, okay, I need to throw the police off my trail from my bank robberies, which is like my job because I'm too much of a loser to have a real job. So I know what, I'll kill people and that'll get them involved in something else. He said that this didn't work out. He decided at some point, fuck it, I'm just going to kill immigrants, period. And he said at some point later that the motive was to scare immigrants away and stop them from moving to Sweden. So his trial was on September 1st of 1993. All of the victims identified him in court, and he was convicted of one count of murder, 10 counts of attempted murder, and 10 robberies. I don't know why 10, but that's what it was. He was sentenced to life in prison. This was in Sweden. So in 2016, he was extradited to Germany for the murder of Blanca. Again, this idiot denied killing her, but admitted that he just happened to own the same kind of gun and ammunition used in her murder. I guess that was just a coincidence. Oh, and speaking of coincidences, this one's quite funny. In 2000, he finally confessed. He dropped the, um, you know, I'm innocent act and confessed to the shootings. He said he wanted to scare foreigners away. But he, he claimed that he conveniently only shot at people who came into his range. And it happened to be a coincidence that they were immigrants. 
So this dude is just full of coincidences. Anyway, he was found guilty in Germany and also sentenced to life there. But he is serving his time in Sweden. Right now he is at the Osteracher Prison, which is a class two prison. It only has 146 inmates. I just don't think that there is that much crime in Sweden, that they need that much prison space. And interestingly about this prison, Johnny Cash performed there. If you don't know who Johnny Cash is, he's an American country singer. And my dad is actually a huge fan of him. And I was forced to listen to some of his music when I was uh, when I was a kid and would spend time with my dad and left me permanently scarred. But anyway, he's known for whatever reason going around to prisons and performing. So in October of 1972, he actually recorded a live album at Osterager Prison. Like most criminals, Ausonius appealed his case in 2008, 2010, and 2012. And fortunately, all of those were rejected. The judge in Germany said that he showed, quote, a high tolerance for cold-bloodedness and committed crimes, quote, rationally and carefully. So a journalist named Gellert Tamas wrote a book about the case called Laser Manon, which is Laser Man in Swedish. In 2002, it became a bestseller. And in the book, he supposedly makes the case that Ausonius's actions are in part explained by a surge in racism in Sweden in the early 90s. And I say apparently because as much as I would have liked to read this book, I can't because it's in Swedish. So I know I have at least one listener in Sweden. If anybody else can read Swedish, it's out there. And the book was also made into a play, which I don't know how that worked. But then it was made into a three-part TV miniseries. In April of 2006, a 23-year-old woman saw the miniseries and became so infatuated with Ausonius that she started corresponding with him and visiting him. And they ended up being engaged, which is disgusting. But for whatever reasons, that uh, was broken off. So if you're thinking, where have I heard this before? This sounds kind of like deja vu. A Scandinavian dude running around killing people because of nationalism. Well, this asshole actually influenced two other shooters. One of them was another Swedish dude named Peter Mangs, and he committed similar shootings between 2009 and 2010. He was born in Melmo, Sweden, and his goal was to make Melmo purely Swedish. He used a 9mm Glock to carry out his shootings. He killed two and injured 13. He was said to idolize Ausonius, and he was also called Laser Man 2. And another person that may be, or actually should be, more familiar to you, if you've been around here for a while, was the Norway mass murderer Anders Bering Breivik. 
Remember in 2011, he went on a, a shooting spree in Oslo and the island of Utoya and killed 77 people for pretty much the same reason. He said that there were was um, too many foreigners coming into Norway. When he was in court in 2011, Breivik actually cited that the laser man was his inspiration for his crimes, but people don't know if he meant Ausonius or Peter Mangs. They're, they're both equally horrible. But I first heard about this case. I saw a documentary on it. It's in my show notes if you want more information. And I was like, wow, I have never heard of this. So I found it quite interesting, needless to say. That's why I decided to do an episode on it. And unfortunately, like I said, I don't have a whole bunch of information on the biography of this dude or, or his childhood. But from what I know of him or, or what I've learned, I think we can talk about his psychology some. So let's first go over the FBI seven categories of motivation for serial killers. This one's pretty obvious, but the seven are anger, criminal enterprise, financial gain, ideology, power, thrill, psychosis, or sexual desire. This one is definitely an ideology, also known as visionary or mission-oriented. This is when a person feels like they have a task to maybe rid the city of sex workers or gay people, or in this case, rid Sweden of immigrants. And going with my newly developed list of 10, which I called the TCU 10. If we look for these behaviors that he's exhibited, I, I can't find a whole lot because I don't know enough about him. But the first one is cruelty to animals and people don't really know. Number two, bullying or being bullied. Yes, he was definitely bullied as a kid for having immigrant parents. Number three, head injury. No idea. Number four, substance abuse not aware of. Number five, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, don't know. Six, stealing, lying, and dishonesty. Well, he robbed banks, so that's a little hint there. Number seven, thrill-seeking. You would think that in order to do what he did, meaning the robberies and the shootings, that you have to work up some adrenaline And even though he thought of the bank robberies as his job or way to support himself, and he saw the shootings as some kind of mission that he was on, I think that he still got a thrill out of seeing people hurt. Destruction or vandalism, don't know about. Developmental disorders, have no idea. And early interest in sex, no idea about. So without knowing much about his childhood, it's kind of hard to figure out what made him tick. But I think the biggest factor is that he had immigrant parents and he was bullied because of this. And he went so far as to change his name to sound more Swedish, which um, I don't know. I'm just saying if I wanted to sound Swedish, I would pick something like, I don't know, Peterson or Erickson or something. Ausonius is um, just bizarre. And 
from everything we know about him, he just seems like what you call an odd duck, just strange. And even his behavior after he was caught, the assaulting their attorneys, I mean, who does that? And then going through six different attorneys, just generally being obnoxious, denying all of these crimes until years later, and then claiming that he only shot at people who were around him or who came near him, and that it was coincidence that they happened to be immigrants. And most criminals, or any ones that I've ever known anyway, are famous for not being able to take responsibility for their behavior. But he took it to new lengths, I think. I mean, he went very far. It seemed like all his life he wanted to be something that he wasn't. He wanted to be a yuppie. You know, he had this fancy apartment and fancy car, and he wanted to be important. Well, I guess everybody in their own way wants to be important, but he went to criminal lengths to become important. He was, I think, what you would call self-important or exhibits a lot of narcissism. And I have a theory. I'm just going to throw this out here. I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head. I'm wondering if because he was bullied as a kid for being having dark hair and brown eyes, which sounds absolutely ridiculous, did he internalize this and come to hate himself? And then when he was going after or shooting immigrants, was he projecting, like symbolically hurting himself? I don't know. That's just an idea. But definitely a strange bird. Now, let's end this on a good note. Remember I told you one of the people he shot was a Chilean PhD student named Eric Bonkham Rudloff? Well, he is now very famous. He's a biologist and computer scientist. He has a doctorate in medical sciences and is the head of SLU Global Bioinformatics Center at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. So if you Google him, there's like a ton of stuff on him. He's like a um, another Einstein. So um, feel free to donate to the podcast through PayPal. The link's in my show notes. Help keep the lights on in the classroom. And it's almost October already. And I don't know if you remember seeing for October, I'm doing crimes that were inspired by horror movies. So I don't know yet if there's going to be four separate ones because there's four Thursdays in October or if we're going to have like two two-parters or what we're going to do. But I guarantee you it's going to be interesting. And there's probably some cases that you've never heard of. Next week, I don't actually know what we're going to talk about, but hopefully it'll be something interesting. This episode is dedicated to all of the victims of John Ausonius. So I'll see everybody next week. Class dismissed.